apostles. Hopefully those things will be uh, useful to us as we begin a new journey in a new book. We're grateful for this wonderful work of the Lord that has been such a blessing to the church throughout the ages. And so we're going to be starting Romans today. This is New Year's, a a good day for new beginnings. Uh, I know that uh, many of you probably made some... uh, some commitments about how you'd like to live your life a little differently this year than you did last year. If those commitments revolved around eating uh, less uh, carb-filled foods, then I hope that you're starting that tomorrow because we do have a great potluck in store for you after church today. We're looking forward to spending some time with you. If uh, we can get a few people after the church service, after we're done with communion, um, to follow our deacons up to the fellowship hall, we will need to transform that space into a space where we can uh, gather around tables and have some food together. Uh, So if there are some able and willing folks who'd be willing to do that after the service, uh, then we'll do that at the conclusion. We'll have a little bit of a lull in between as we get the food ready to go. Uh, Make sure you spend some time just talking with each other and catching up with one another and uh, wishing each other well after the service, uh, service is finished. And then we'll transition into a time of eating. When you set your mind to study something new, How do you typically go about that? What are your expectations? I guess that kind of depends. Um, If you're studying something formally because you have to do it because you're a student, uh, then you might study in a way that your professor expects you to study, right? Because you know there's going to be a test, and so you're going to study in the way that they would expect you to study. But what if you're about... What what about if you're just simply studying something for enrichment? You are interested in something, you want to explore, you want to expand what you know. Uh, Recently, I've been thinking a lot about rotary engines. I like mechanical things, so I've been reading some stuff about that. My wife's been uh, studying about home gardening and how to be more self-sustaining. Some of our kids are studying musical instruments and how to play them. One of my boys is getting really good at the yo-yo. So... There are lots of things that we explore in life that are a blessing to us that we can enjoy learning more things about. And, and often when we approach that task of learning something new, we, we, if we really stop to think about why, we're doing it for a number of reasons. We're doing it because maybe we want to be entertained. We want a pleasant preoccupation, a way to spend our time. And so we're thinking of something new, something that hasn't been played out in our lives already. Sometimes we're doing it because we want to find something novel, something that we haven't experienced before. Maybe there's something out there that we would really enjoy that would be a blessing to us, and we haven't spent any time thinking about that. So we're, we're looking for new things to think about and to, to understand. Perhaps you do it to find a solution to a practical problem in your life. There's something that's not as you would like it to be. And so you're reading up, you're looking at other experts, you're asking people and talking to folks because there's something new that you would like to learn that might be actually a benefit to you, a blessing in some way to solve a problem in your life. I want to suggest this. We do not typically take up and read. We do not usually set about the task of learning something new, whether it's reading a book or examining a website or checking out a set of instructions, we don't typically take up and read with the expectation that what we encounter is going to change our lives in significant ways. Our expectations are usually set much lower than that. If we find something novel, something neat, something that we hadn't found before, something that might have a slight practical use, even if it's just for a time, then we're pleasantly surprised. We feel a sense of discovery and satisfaction that our Our thoughts were not for nothing. But we don't expect the things that we read to pierce our very souls. Do not read the Bible that way. Do not approach the living Word of God just hoping that maybe something novel or new might pop up, something that you haven't heard before. Maybe hoping that one little practical takeaway might might affect your day for a moment. Don't read the Scripture without the expectation that God uses this Word to shape his people into what they are to be. We might not expect most things that we learn in life to bring radical change to who we are, but as we approach God's word, it is wise to remember that Holy Scripture has the power to do exactly that. It reveals our origin. It tells us where we came from. It reveals the crisis that we have to deal with in life, these conflicts that exist first between us and God, but also between us and others. It reveals God's solution to those crises. God is the one that can unravel the tangled messes that we make 
out of life. And he shows us those solutions through this ordained and holy scripture. The word of God reveals the terms of the covenant relationship that God establishes with his people. So this Bible is not like any other resource that you might stumble upon or spend a little time passing your day with. This is a holy book. It is universally significant. There are many things that you will learn about that have little or nothing to do with the vast majority of people in the world. That cannot be said of Scripture. It is so fundamentally relevant to all that pertains to humanity that even the non-believer would be a fool to not take stock and familiarize themselves with what the Word of God says. Consider the vast impact it has made on this world. Everyone should know something of Scripture. It concerns matters that should be of utmost importance to us, especially if you're following Christ. It tells us things that are vital for us to know, not only so that we might have assurance, but so that we might wonder at this amazing God who has called us to Himself. It gives us a framework by which we might even understand what is good and what is evil. And friends, we need that framework because that is not a reality you can come to on your own with your own rebellious heart. This is true of any scripture, but the specific part of the Holy Scripture that we'll be putting our time and attention into for the next year or two on most Sunday mornings has particular historic reputation for bringing about radical change in the hearts of those who study it and meditate upon it. St. Augustine is one of the most influential theologians that the church has known. And St. Augustine counted Romans as the book that opened his eyes to the magnitude of his sin and for his need for redemption through grace. Martin Luther, the great reformer, was lost. And yet as a monk in the Roman Catholic tradition was preaching through the book of Romans when he began to understand that everything that he thought about salvation, thinking that it was of his own works or his own righteous deeds, was wrong. The book of Romans radically changed his heart and life. And as one of many catalysts that God used, Martin Luther helped to change millions of people's lives through pointing them back to the Scripture, not just to the book of Romans, but to the Word of God, which is vital to our, well, our health and well-being. John Wesley was so moved by the book of Romans and its plea for man to repent that it encouraged him to support missions radically through the course of his time in ministry. The book of Romans, on a more personal note, has made significant impacts in my life as well. When I was a 15-year-old boy, I had trusted in Jesus as a young child, but I always thought of the Word as some lofty reservoir of knowledge that I would never really obtain to until a man named Merrill uh, Smoke came and said, you know what, I see you interested in Sunday morning services. Has anybody ever personally discipled you? And he said, would you like to meet with me once a week? And we'll read through a, a chapter of Romans each week and we'll, we'll talk about it and we'll learn more about what God has in store for us and how we should understand our salvation. It took us a lot more than a chapter a week to get through Romans. But that marked a significant time in my life when for the first time I thought, you know what, I might actually be able to know this book. This might be a book that not only will the man in the pulpit be able to tell me what to think about it, but I'll be able to think about this on my own. The Spirit of God is in me. I can study the Word and I can grasp it. And then a few years later, when I was 20, God used Romans 12 to affirm my calling in ministry, which was something that I wasn't excited about at first. It was something that was daunting and intimidating to me. But God used the, the words of Romans 12 to show me that my life could be a living sacrifice to the Lord and that He had been giving me gifts that might be integrated into the blessing of the body of Christ that I now belonged to. So let us enter into the season in Romans expecting the Lord to use it in such a way that we will be shaped and edified by its contents and that by this book, our love for the Lord God and our respect for His Scripture might grow exponentially as we see the impact that it can make upon us. And so we're in Romans chapter 1. And this morning we're going to read verses 1 through 7. We are not going to get through this much Scripture this morning, but let's read it and then we'll begin to examine it. Paul a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures 
concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray with me, brothers and sisters. Gracious God, we are so thankful that you have not left it up to us to think carefully and philosophically and creatively to come to some sort of conclusion about what we think God is. You have shown us who you are and you have done it specifically through the special revelation of this book. Lord, we are blessed by the contents of Romans. If there is anyone here who is a Christian today, it's very likely that Romans played a big part in their understanding of their need for salvation. But Father, we know that all of Holy Scripture works to exalt your great name, and we pray that it will be no different as we go through the book of Romans. We ask that the name of Jesus Christ would be lifted up in our lives, in our church, and in our hearts as we contemplate this scripture and as we think of what you are calling us to be and to do in faith this morning as we read and study. And we ask all of these things expectantly in Jesus' name. Amen. These first verses are part of what we would call a prologue, an introductory body of information that gives a certain context to the main message of the letter. Paul does, doesn't just burst into a communication from himself to this church in Rome. First, he sets things up a little bit. He says hello, but he doesn't say hello how most of us say hello, and we're going to look at that here this morning. So if you would like to think of things in chunks. I know sometimes I can't think of big picture things until I break them down into smaller pieces and parts. The book of Romans can be nicely segmented into five major sections. You have the prologue that we're reading right now this morning, and we're beginning in verses 1 through 17 of the first chapter. And then you have a large section from verse 118 through 319, where the Apostle Paul spends a great deal of time helping us to understand the broken state of man's natural heart. We might call that the guilt section, where we recognize the weight of sin. Um, other people uh, describe this as the sin component of the gospel as displayed in the book of Romans. When we get to verse 20 of chapter 3, the, the Lord will begin to reveal through the Apostle Paul the solution to that problem of guilt. He will show us His amazing grace uh, that grace is the thing that leads us to salvation and makes it possible for us to know God not as our enemy and rival, but as the one who has made us new and given us a righteousness that is foreign to us. And then the third section begins after chapter 11, verse 36. You might note there that the majority of the book dwells on the grace of God. For while sin is very important, the power of Christ's grace is, is greater, is more powerful. So for uh, several chapters, from chapter 3 to chapter 11, we're, we're dealing with the grace of Jesus. And then it, starting in verse 36, we don't depart from the grace of Jesus, but we see the grace of Jesus at work in how we respond to this, this wonderful truth that we can be saved by his work. And so we call this the gratitude section from chapter 12, verse 1, through chapter 15, verse 13. And we will see how God uses this gospel to transform us in such a way that we can live in ever more sanctified ways in community with one another and in service to our King. And then there will be an epilogue similar to this prologue uh, that wraps things up and sends some uh, technical greetings from people who are with Paul and to those who are in Rome. That's chapter 15, verse 14 through chapter 16, verse 27. So that is just a, a synopsis of the book. We're, we're going to be taking our time through this book, and so it is going to take us several months to accomplish the task of getting a grasp and a handle on all that exists here. And I, I guarantee you that we won't touch on every single thing that can be taught about. It is the habit of, of many folks, so as we think about how this letter begins, it is the habit of many folks to just think, whenever there's an introduction, whenever there's a preface, Let's just skip all that stuff. I don't need all that beginning stuff. Let's just get 
to the story. Let's get to the meat. Let's get to the heart of what is being communicated in this piece of literature. Uh, one of the remarkable things, though, about Scripture, none of it is of wasted filler. None of it is a mere formality. Every single word that is written on the pages of Scripture is ordained by the Lord to be useful to us in some way, either directly or by setting up other things that God is communicating to us. Every verse exalts Jesus Christ. And every verse carries value and blessing to the reader who receives it in faith. So we will not leapfrog over the beginning of this epistle. Instead, we will carefully consider what God determines to communicate to us even in what might seem like somewhat of a formulaic introduction that makes up the first seven verses of the chapter. Though some of you have read the book of Romans several times, we mustn't approach the text assuming that you've already acquired everything the text has to give to you. Even when we're finished with this journey, some two years from now maybe, you can go back and start over again and continue mining important truths from this text uh, that maybe we didn't pick up the first time through. It's not that the text changes over time, but it is so packed with knowledge and wisdom that it's very difficult for us to think that we could possibly get all from it in one sitting. Thomas Schreiner, who is one of the, uh, the theologians whose commentaries I'm working with as I prepare to preach to you each week, says that exegesis, which is basically saying withdrawing the truth from the text, uh, which is different than eisegesis, which is putting your ideas into the text or reading your opinions and your beliefs into the scriptures. Eisegesis is the right way to approach scripture. Eisegesis begins with a patient and humble listening to the text with the willingness to hear an alien word. We are all prone to read our own conceptions into the text. Thus, our first task is simply to see what the text actually says. And so let us carefully consider the intentional and, yes, very theological way that Paul begins his communication here. Paul starts out with a greeting or an introduction of sorts. And within this introduction, he cannot help but give brief but meaningful description to three very distinct things. He's going to describe himself, Paul, as he introduces himself to the people. He's going to describe the gospel that he preaches the gospel that is foundational to all of his work and service. And then he's going to describe briefly Jesus Christ who gives us this gospel, who gives life to this hope that is within us. And so as we turn our attention to these three opening subjects, we might ask ourselves, why, why does Paul go to the trouble of expanding on these themes so early in the letter? And there are several good reasons for that. First of all, Paul was not the one who went to Rome and planted the church in Rome. Now that's different from when we studied through the church in, or the letter to the church in Galatia, right? It's different from when we studied the letter to the church in Corinth. Paul was on the ground and personally involved with the strengthening and the foundation of those churches. But the church in Rome only knows of Paul. They don't necessarily know him personally. So if he's going to have a voice that carries any weight to these people in Rome who are following after Christ, then they need to see that there's reason they have to trust him. Uh, to, they need to see that he believes the orthodox true gospel, that, they, that, that he believes and preaches the same Christ that they have come to know. And we know that there are already false teachers about even at this very early stage of the church in the New Testament. Uh, there are already people who are taking the gospel that some of the churches were founding on and twisting that gospel and distorting it and trying to preach something that was very close to the truth but was in fact significantly different enough from the truth that it would prevent someone from getting to the truth if they embraced that false doctrine. So Paul's got to acknowledge that they should be skeptical. They should not just embrace this letter, because Paul's name is on it, there should be some evidence there that Paul is teaching the things that they have come to know and love and appreciate about who Christ is. And thirdly, the Romans cannot know Paul. There's no way that they can have confidence in him unless they know something of the Savior that Paul serves and the gospel that this, this Paul preaches. And so they're go Paul's going to have to start by establishing and rooting this letter in true and orthodox ways of thinking about Jesus and about the gospel. 
and in a clear picture of who he himself is as an apostle. So let's begin by seeing what Paul has to say about himself. Paul first describes himself as a slave. As a slave. And we might say, well, you know what? I've got the Bible right in front of me, Pastor. Mine doesn't say slave. When I read chapter 1, verse 1, my ESV says servant. Or my NASB says bondservant. Paul is a bondservant to Jesus. Why do you use the word slave here? And I use the word slave here distinctly because slave is the most accurate translation of the original Greek word that would exist in the manuscripts that we get our translations from. It is the word doulos. And so when we think about this word doulos, when we do a little research on this word, that it means properly someone who belongs to another, a bond slave without any ownership rights of their own. Now this might seem like a very counterproductive way to begin a letter if you're hoping that the things you're about to say will be taken seriously and will carry weight with the people who are going to hear them. Usually you talk about your credentials, the great things about yourself, why other people have admiration and confidence in you. But what power does a slave have? What credibility do slaves possess that might make a person want to carefully weigh what that slave might have to say? Typically, especially in that culture, if you're a slave, you're a slave because you live foolishly. You were a slave not because somebody ripped you out of your foreign context and forced you into lifelong labor. That's what we think of slavery as Americans because that is the dark mark on our history as a nation. But the slaves in the day of Paul were typically slaves because they were financially irresponsible and they got themselves in such a predicament that they couldn't dig themselves out. And so they could either go to jail and their family members could pay for their debt and, until it was finalized and then they could get out of jail or they could sell themselves into a slavery situation whereby they would work off that debt in the confines of restricted freedoms so that they would not go out and cause themselves more harm and get themselves deeper into the conundrum that they had gotten themselves in in the first place. And so it might not seem like a smart move for Paul to say, hey guys, I'm writing to you as a slave. If Paul is trying to make a solid connection with the believers in that important city, that capital city of Rome, to have the very first word that he uses to describe himself be the word slave might seem to be a very poor strategy. Except for one important detail, though. Who is a Paul a slave to? He is a slave to Jesus Christ. Okay. He is a slave to the Son of God himself, to God incarnate. Now that carries some clout, doesn't it? Even though a slave has no remarkable freedom or power of their own, if they are bound in service to someone of remarkable power, to someone of incredible influence, to someone with immeasurable resources such as the very King of Kings and the Lord of Lords Jesus Christ has, then even that slave would expect to be listened to. Three weeks ago, on a Tuesday night, I heard a knock at the door. I opened to see a middle-aged woman I'd never seen before. Uh, she was a normal-looking lady. She told me her normal-sounding name, and she handed me a normal-looking manila envelope. She didn't seem like anyone special at all. She didn't have a uniform on. Uh, she didn't have a name badge or some special ID. But when she told me that she was representing a law firm and I was being served papers for a lawsuit concerning a minor car accident that I had been involved with two years before, suddenly that normal, everyday person became very important to me. I needed to know what was going on here. Her presence on my doorstep carried a lot of significance. Not because she was in any way capable of determining my future, had any power over me, but because she represented somebody that might impact my days to come. See, Paul is a slave meaning that he considers himself to be utterly and completely under the direction and control of one who is much mightier and more influential than himself. And even as he writes this letter to the Christians in Rome, he does not do so as a man acting upon his own volition or according to his own whim. He does so in submissive service to the one who exercises authority over him. And this is part of the reason why we would really benefit from recognizing the true weight of this Greek term, doulos, and not settle for a translation saying, oh, he was a servant, or he was a bondservant even. A bondservant owes a limited debt to his master. 
one that might be paid off over time. It was not uncommon at all in the, in the slavery of Paul's day for a person who had found themselves in that difficult position of slavery to work long enough to be able to reverse their fortunes and become free again. Can a Christian do that regarding their sin? No. Our sin against God is to such a great degree evil and wicked that it is worthy of a lifelong debt of suffering to Him. We live in a world that doesn't think about sin that seriously, don't we? We live in a world that takes sin very flippantly and thinks of sin in, in, in single and double-digit numbers. Doesn't think about sin in, in infinite value. When you sin against the God of all creation, the one to whom you owe every ounce of your being and existence, then you have created treason of a cosmic scale. And so there is no way that we, even as redeemed believers, could think that, that we could somehow work so hard to please the Lord and to be valuable to the kingdom of heaven that one day he might just set us free to be autonomous and, and independent people completely outside of the realm of his authority as king over us in his kingdom. We can never work so hard as to pay back our Savior for the freedom that he purchased with his own blood. And, and the more we think about that, the more you don't want to, Christian. You don't want to be independent from this God who is infinitely wiser and better than you. You don't want to be running around outside of the umbrella of the, the purview and the grace of Jesus Christ. You want to be under his authority. It is a benefit and a blessing to you to have him looking over you and to have him setting the boundaries for the path that you may walk. There will be freedom within those boundaries, but your God loves you and knows better than you do. So to have this God guiding you and directing you is one of your greatest blessings. A servant, in contrast to a slave, has a great degree of freedom over their own lives, don't they? They have to submit to their master to a large degree while they're on the clock, just like a waiter or a maid or a bellhop is at, at the beck and call of their employer while they're clocked in. But at the end of the day, a servant goes home to their own dwelling place, to their own residence. And they exercise freedom over their personal life in a way that their employer has no dominion or say over them. But is that true of the Christian? Do we come to church on the Lord's Day and render our on-the-clock service to Him and then punch out and head home and do whatever we want to do free from God's view and direction? That's not how a Christian is supposed to live. A Christian has called to live in fellowship with the Lord. And it is a covenantal fellowship that has been defined by our God. It's a, a fellowship of dependence and a fellowship of nurture where God directs us and guides us. And yes, he does give us freedoms to the point that it is healthy and good for us. But God is always over us as our King and our Lord and as the Father that we need. Every aspect of our lives belongs to Jesus as a result of this transaction that God has made to purchase us and ransom us to be his people. So we are no longer our own, technically. The life that we now live is to be lived entirely under the guidance and direction of a God who has authority over us. I, I really appreciate what John MacArthur, a pastor in Southern California, had to say about this. And he's, got, he's written a ton about this word, doulos. There's a book called Slave that he authored, which is really good. He says, We're not like butlers or table waiters, as if we were free agents employed by someone to serve. But we are slaves, owned by Christ, and obligated to render absolute obedience to Him. He purchased us with His blood. He redeemed us from the bondage of our sin. But having been set free from sin, we have become slaves of righteousness. This is a quotation of Romans 6.18. Once we understand that, a host of difficult, practical, and theological questions are easily answered. End quote. If slave is the best translation for verse 1 that we're reading here today, why do so many faithful Bibles choose to translate this term servant or bondservant? They do so with good intentions. I sincerely believe they mean well. This translation is done in an effort to avoid distracting, confusion, 
regarding the modern conception of slavery that we tend to import back into the time of Christ that people without careful thought might misunderstand. Of course, the idea of one person being the property of another person seems wrong to us because it is. All people are made in the image of God. We are all sinners, not one better than another in terms of our righteousness. Even though the Bible says that I am the head of my wife and my household, that doesn't mean I am better than her. It doesn't mean that she's my property. Even though I helped bring my children into the world, they are not my property. God truly is the one that created them. I don't own them. But it is in no way wrong for the creator to be thought of as one who owns the ones that he has properly created. This is not the only place where Paul describes himself. as I just want, real quick, that's part of the reason why slavery in, in the way that it was done in America is so offensive to the Christian heart. Because it makes a man take on the responsibility that only God has. God is the only one who owns his creation. And when we say that we have bought or sold a person at a price and that they belong to us like our property, then we're playing God in a hideous way. Every aspect of our lives belongs to the Lord God. And it is in no way wrong for the Lord God to consider those who are His to belong to Him. He properly owns us. And, and that is part of the reason why He's not ashamed to call Himself a slave to the Lord God. It's not the only place here in Romans where He does that either. He also describes Himself as a slave in 1 Corinthians 3.5 and in 1 Corinthians 4.1. He describes himself as a slave in 2 Corinthians 6.4. He does it to the Galatian church in the first chapter of that letter, verse 10. He does it to the Philippians in the introduction in verse 1 of chapter 1. Same with Titus. He uses this term about himself on a regular basis. So it's not just a one-time blip on the radar where he said something and didn't really think it through all the way, you know. No, this is, this is Paul doubling down, tripling down, saying, I am a slave to the Lord God and I am not ashamed of this. He not only says it of himself, he speaks of all believers as belonging to God in this same technical way. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 through 20, he writes, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Those who have trusted in Jesus have been gifted. The very presence of God, the Spirit, dwells with us now, making our physical body a type of home for the Spirit. He goes on to say, Whom you have from God, you are not your own. For you were bought at a price, so glorify God in your body. You were bought at a price, you are not your own. Look at 1 Corinthians 7, 23. You were bought with a price, do not become bondservants. That word again is doulos, slaves of men. So there's a reason why we should fight for freedom, we should strive for freedom. Because the kind of oppressive slavery where a person is subjugated like property and stolen away, man-stealing, that is against the, the law of the scriptures. You were bought at a price. Do not become bondservants, slaves of men. And Paul's not alone in this thinking either. The apostle Paul concurs, or the apostle Peter concurs. First Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He speaks of this ransoming because he is alluding to the same concept that Paul earlier alluded to, that we are purchased back from the slavery of sin which used to oppress us and hold us captive. He says again in chapter 2, verse 16, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants, douloi, slaves of God. James also says it in his letter. And, and nowhere does Paul speak about this position with any kind of a begrudging attitude of resentment. We do not get the impression whatsoever that Paul would love to take the first possible opportunity to break free from this Lord who rules him or to, or to purchase some kind of freedom for himself that he doesn't currently have so as to improve his station in life and gain independence. To the contrary. Paul has been brought into the service of the king. And this is exactly where he now wants to be. He is rejoicing in this aspect of who he is in Christ. This submissive, servant-hearted aspect of who he is. He didn't always. 
He didn't always want to be this kind of a slave to the Lord God. In fact, when you think about the conversion of Paul, it's so remarkable and, and interesting because it puts on display something that may seem unique in him but is actually true for all of us. None of us wants to be a part of the kingdom of God unless the Lord God draws us near and opens our eyes to our need for it. Paul was vehemently, staunchly dug in against the church of Jesus Christ to the point where it was his vocation to persecute these believers of the new way. But Acts 9, 3 through 4, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? Saul, I see what you want and what you want is wrong. I need to make you want what you should really want. And in that moment, whatever grand plans Paul had engineered for his own life were erased in an instant by the veto power of God. He suddenly had a totally new direction. Not one he wrote out himself, but one that Christ was writing out for him. But in confronting Paul in his sin and in commanding Paul to repent, Jesus gave Paul more than a position. He gave him something else that he desperately needed. He gave him a new heart. He gave him a desire to do what is holy and righteous and good. He no longer hated Christ. He no longer thought of Christ as some kind of imposter, some sort of false fulfillment of, of an ancient prophecy. He saw Jesus as the exact anointed one that God prepared and sent. His mind changed. And now he had a new mind, a new heart. Gone was the hard heart of stubborn stone that would not yield to the commandments of the living God. Gone was the curse of Adam that dooms every man and woman to long for a poisonous independence from God that seems like an alluring opportunity to rule oneself, but which actually costs us everything and cuts us off from the source of all life and goodness and contentment. And those things are gone from him. And in its place is a new heart, one with a new set of desires, desires that were now properly Paul's own desires, but desires that had been utterly absent prior to God's intervention. This new heart is a gift, friends. And the gift has given sight to blind Paul so that he could see that there is honor and joy and fulfillment in being a slave to the God of all creation. Paul is properly a slave because he knows that he owes his master everything. But he is not only a slave. Salvation has made Paul more than that. It has made him also a citizen of the heavenly kingdom that God rules over. It has made him a son of the living God to the degree that he can gaze up into the heavens and say, my father is looking out for me. The one who I serve is more than just the one who demands and commands. It is the one whose image I personally bear. It has made Paul a soldier in the heavenly army. God is entrusting him with the weapons of warfare to fight against darkness and evil. God has given to him this gospel, which he will now take into the world and watch as God uses it through Paul to eradicate the darkness and dispel it. So Paul is not only a slave, and neither are you, Christian, if you have trusted in the Lord God, but he is no less than a slave. He is more than a slave, but he is no less than that. And as true believers, we are slaves as well. We are owned by our God, not in the derogatory way that our country is ashamed of in America, but in the way that he is properly the creator who has given us life, and we belong heart, mind, soul, and strength to him. The next thing that Paul says about himself expands on the reader's understanding of who he is. He is not just a slave. The service Paul has been called to as a slave of Jesus Christ is a very, of a very particular nature. Paul has been called to serve his master as an apostle. And this is what we might have expected Paul to lead with. For whereas slavery is by its very definition a humbling situation to be in, the position of apostle is one of delegated power and authority. An apostle is one who is sent out 
who is commissioned and sent out to fulfill the express purposes and intentions of a person of great power and authority who has commissioned them and equipped them with the resources to do their job. That person of authority has set them on their way to complete the task and to do it according to their instruction. And so a disciple and an apostle, while very similar in some ways, are not exactly the same thing. In the book of Matthew, we read this in two verses, in Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 2. It says here, And Jesus called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and affliction. So he called them disciples. They followed after him. And then what did he do? He gave them authority. And then now look, having given them authority, how he describes them in the second verse. The names of the twelve apostles, those who are sent and given authority, are these. First Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew's brother. And it goes on to list the other twelve apostles. We see it also in the book of Mark. Chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. So all whom he desired, they came to him. And then of those who came, he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So they are disciples. And then he also names them apostles, those twelve. At a very special position, a very special function in that early church. A disciple is one called to Jesus, one who follows him and learns all that they can from him so that their lives might be radically marked by the character of the one whom they follow. This is true of every believer. But not every believer is properly an apostle. And as the New Testament unfolds, we will see that term for one who is commissioned to go out and accomplish a task used much more narrowly to describe those who were given a testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were the ones who could say, I have seen with my eyes the one who we call Christ. I have seen him in the flesh. He, he surely conquered the grave. I would stake my name upon it. And these, these individuals, these apostles who were appointed to take that knowledge into the world to establish the early church did so faithfully even to their deaths. There are some slight variations in the New Testament whereby you might see somebody just named an apostle as a generally sent one. We have people like Apollos and Barnabas, Silas and Timothy, who are called apostles, but they're not one of the 12 official apostles. And among those 12 apostles, of course, was a counterfeit, was Judas Iscariot, who committed suicide after betraying Jesus. And so one who came by strange and unusual means took his spot, and that would be the Apostle Paul, who saw Christ risen from the grave on the road to Damascus when he challenged Paul and said, why do you kick against the goads? Why do you resist me? And so a disciple is one who follows. An apostle, in this proper sense that Paul is using it here, is one who is especially gifted with the testimony of Christ's resurrection and was commissioned to go and use that testimony to fortify and build the early church. These commissioned apostles are equipped in distinct ways and they carry a particular type of first-hand knowledge that makes them somewhat distinct from the rest of the disciples. And that is why the third term that Paul uses to describe himself in this theological greeting is as one who was set apart. Set apart for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now this third statement of Paul's is wrapped up in the second, really. His position as an apostle is not one that he ascribed to. It's not one that he applied to. It's one, not one that he earned. It is one that has been bestowed upon him by the will of the one who directs all things. So in giving him and the other apostles this charge, Jesus has bound him to a particular, important, and foundational kind of work that Jesus would use to establish and strengthen the earliest churches in the New Covenant. Because he was set apart for that work, it meant that he would not easily be able to continue on in the normal everyday activities that normally mark human life. Of course, he had to eat. Of course, the Apostle Paul had to sleep. He had to find ways even to earn enough money that he might sustain himself financially. But his focus and his attention would be to an extreme extent focused on the kinds of things that Paul is doing even in writing this letter to Rome. He would care for the body of Christ. And if you know anything of 
the Apostle Paul. He cares for the body of Christ. He cares for this church. He, he loves this church and prays for it intently always. He is dedicated to seeing this truth walk in the, or this church walk in the truth and not in error. He would testify to the resurrection of Jesus Christ that anyone who doubted that perhaps this was some sort of a mythos or a rumor would be set straight that Jesus Christ did in the flesh rise from the grave. He would establish new churches and plant them far and wide. He would build churches where they did not yet exist. And he would correct true churches when they strayed from the truth, whether he was the one who planted them or not. The gospel was still their foundation. He was willing to repair those foundations. He would preach. He would preach the true words of God. And so point people to the true head of the church, who is Jesus Christ our Lord. And in all of this, the uniqueness of his life and the lives of the other apostles would serve as a catalyst for growth and a standard for the very theological slavery by which Paul described himself at the outset of this letter. The task that Paul has been set apart for is a task that is rooted in the will of God and is dictated by the one who sets him apart for that special work. Now, when we begin a new book of the Bible, there is a tendency to begin with our focus on the early author, in this case, the Apostle Paul. And in some respects, we must, for we will benefit from knowing from whose hand these words are coming. But we would be mistaken if we thought that these words were properly Paul's words. Paul is a vessel used by God. Paul is a means by which God speaks to us today. There is a great danger of thinking of these sacred documents that comprise the Bible as nothing more than historical documents. They are properly historical documents, but they are much more than that. Before they even enter our history, they are the accurate expression of God's will. They are eternal truth. They didn't become truth when they were spoken out or written down. They have always been the true will of God. 2 Timothy 2, 16 through 17. This is 3, 16 through 17, rather. It's not a new verse for most of you, but I read it here to help you to understand the gravity of what it means to study the Word of God. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Not just most of the good works, not just the majority of them, but for every good work. Whatever God calls you to do as a Christian, you have what you need to do it by looking to the Word and getting the instruction that it has provided for you there. To look at Scripture as historical without acknowledging the inspiration that sets these words apart from other writings might result in a number of dangerous, dangerous mistakes. Thinking of the contents as the Apostle Paul's personal point of view, for instance, rather than recognizing that these things come to us by way of God's authority and according to His perp uh, per perfect will, would be a huge mistake on our part. We saw that potential error when we studied through the book of 1 Corinthians, didn't we? There the apostle writes uh, about some very controversial things, some things that come across offensive to the progressive, quote-unquote, sensibilities of man today. It is common for some to say, well, that's Paul's opinion on the matter of women in the home, or that's Paul's point of view on homosexuality, or that is the way that Paul looks at authority in the church, but that doesn't mean it's Jesus' position. That doesn't mean that this is really the way that we have to do it. In fact, that mentality, that thinking is utter nonsense. We cannot write off any of what Paul says because he has been set apart to bring a message that is not his own message. It is the message of the one who sent him. And so when we deny what Paul is telling us in Romans, we're denying the Lord God who sent this commissioned one. Here's another danger of failing to see that God is the ultimate author of Scripture. If we think only of the earthly author, then we have a tendency to lean on our own understanding, the understanding of men when we're contemplating these texts. We can fall into this mindset of, this is how we, human beings, communicate, so the text must mean this according to our man-made rules and laws of textual interpretation. And we've seen that historically in recent years in things like the Jesus Seminar. Have you ever heard of the Jesus Seminar? Sounds great, right? I want to go to a Jesus Seminar. I love Jesus. It wasn't the kind of seminar you want to go to, okay? The Jesus Seminar was a collaboration of somewhere around 200 theologians who gathered in Sonoma 
over the course of six years, from 1985 to 1990. They gathered to analyze the historicity of the claims that the Bible makes, particularly focusing on the words of Jesus Christ himself. And so using modern literary techniques rooted in expectations of how people typically speak and write, this liberal group of scholars concluded that about half of Jesus' words were not really his words. They were words put into his mouth by gospel authors and early believers in an effort to give weight to their own personal hopes and fears. And so among the sayings that were rejected in this Jesus seminar were such classics as John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that, whoever who believe, that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. The Jesus seminar said, nope, we can't see that as Christ anymore. It might be useful to us historically because Christians have believed this over the years, but it's not Jesus' words, according to them. Or what about John 14, 6? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Or, no, that's not the right one. I put the wrong one there. For I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that is what John 14, 6 declares. When you think about this, take the time to examine the criteria and the mindset of those scholars who were involved you would quickly realize that such an endeavor, such a project, is A, shockingly arrogant. Shockingly arrogant to think that our methods of textual criticism, and textual criticism hasn't even been a thing for more than a few hundred years. But this mindset, this, this, this way of looking at written texts, to think that we have developed a way that would help us to unravel a mystery 2,000 years old and to go back and say, no, that, that truly doesn't sound like Jesus to me. I think we should strike it from the record, is absolutely proud. Secondly, the rules that they used to pass judgment on God's word themselves were such an arbitrary mess of opinions that they really just ended up re reflecting the popular attitudes of liberal uh, scholars of the day. That's all they ended up doing. It became a democratic process of saying, what do we want Jesus to say, not what did he actually say? That is the exact kind of interpretation we want to absolutely guard our hearts and minds from. When we approach the word of God, we approach it as the word of God. We approach it affirming it as the word of God. And so we look at it as God's message to us through this apostle Paul, not Paul's message to us that happens to be about God. Now, as much as I would like to carry on here and expand on the next two subjects that Paul cannot help but begin teaching about, even right here in the greeting of his letter to the Romans, our Lord has another blessing in store for us this morning. We have the sacred sacrament of communion. And so we will have to wait until next week to discuss at length Paul's treatment of the gospel and Paul's treatment of Jesus Christ who sent him to preach the gospel as it appears in these first seven verses. Would you pray with me? as?